Jesus had this discussion with them about uh, their reasoning, their, their very nature. They were supposed to be representing God, and he kept pointing out to them that you say that you know God, and he said, I actually came from God. He was God standing there in the flesh, and what did they want to do to him? He pointed out to them, you have a desire to kill me. The person you say that you represent to all these people standing around here. You control the, the synagogue. You control the who reads what scripture. And yet you can't recognize when God in the flesh comes and walks in your midst. And we looked at that as idol worship because an idol isn't just something we carve with a knife and set on a mantle that we can look at and maybe even bow down to. It's not just a physical thing. An idol can be any false picture of God, even mentally. If we picture God in the wrong way, doing something that the Bible says he doesn't do, saying something the Bible doesn't declare him as saying, we have a form of idol worship because if we really believe God said something, even though it's false, if we really believe that, our behavior is going to be ordered likewise. We're going to follow that. And that idol worship, the Bible teaches, it takes you to very terrible places. The second part of this, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. And keep in mind, as we start this, that initial picture of what we did on Tuesday. Those, the, the Jewish leaders. They actually had the Son of God, God in the flesh, standing before them. And they could not at all even begin to recognize that that was God himself. And they didn't just have Jesus in front of them for 15 minutes or an hour lecture. They had him for years of his life, watching him heal the sick, preach and teach, feeding 5,000 people at several different times and more, raising the dead, doing all the things that the Bible should support that God would do, teaching the things that God said he would teach, couldn't identify him that he was actually God. That, when I read those, that makes me think about people in today's world. Our friends, your friends, mine, family members who may disagree with us about some things in the Bible. None of us have physically seen Jesus, very likely. The Apostle Paul did on the road to Damascus. At least the, the voice came from, from heaven and talked to him. Most of us haven't heard probably an audible voice. We've very, very likely haven't seen the physical image of Jesus appear to us. So if we haven't seen that, how do we know that we worship the true God? How do we know that our mental image of Jesus is accurate? Because we sure don't want to fall into the same pitfall that the Jewish leaders had when they had him right before them in sandals and a toga and couldn't recognize it. How are we different? And this obviously is not meant to put doubt in our minds because we do have a more sure word of prophecy, Peter teaches. The written Bible. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God who at sundry times, that's just an old English way of saying, at different or various times, and in diverse manners, he spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. This first verse saying that in many different times, in a lot of different ways, God spoke to the fathers. The fathers were the people of the Old Testament. 
and he spoke to them by the prophets. In the Old Testament, God always had a prophet. He had raised people up. And we have many stories where uh, Hannah was the mother of Samuel, who was a great prophet. You had other such like instances where a mother who was oftentimes barren would give birth to uh, a miracle child almost. I believe Gideon's mother may have been that way. Um, But Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Anyway, many prophets in the Old Testament where God set them apart. He did many things by their hands, but he spoke to the people. And the entire nation listened. At least they were supposed to. They listened and God spoke through prophets. The next verse says that he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. In verse 2. So it makes a distinction, it would seem. That before Jesus, God spoke to us by his prophets. And this doesn't mean that the office of prophet is no longer working. God does have prophets in the earth. But it does add a certain confirmation that in the last days he's spoken to us by his son. And what that means is that if a prophet today were to speak something, and if it were to contradict the life and the teachings of Jesus, we... We throw it out. He hath spoken to us in these last days through his Son. There's even a much broader, a bigger meaning. We need to just pull out that phrase and plaster it in very large font for about ten minutes. Go to the book of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John. Because he has spoken to us through his Son. We need a a very good definition of this and and a mental picture. What does God mean when... He said he's spoken to us through his son. Because as you know, you and I were born in the 50s, 60s, or 70s. And Jesus wasn't on the earth then, so how did he speak to us? If we've never physically shook hands with Jesus, how do we speak or hear from God through his son? It's a basic question, but I think it's a a foundational one. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning... Not just in the 1950s, not in the 1970s when I was born, but in the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word actually was God. Now, at this point in John's Gospel, he has not defined the Word. He has just so far told us that, where was he? He was at the very beginning. John's Gospel is the only one that starts with Jesus at the beginning, the pre-existence of Christ, before his physical sandal days here on the earth. Matthew starts with Abraham, beget Isaac, and he goes all the way down to Jacob and, or Joseph and Mary. Luke does something very similar. John's gospel is the only one that starts talking about Jesus from Genesis chapter 1. Now, look at verse 14. We always connect these two verses because it explains it. After mentioning the Word, what does verse 14 say? That the Word was made flesh and dwelt, or He lived among us. We beheld, they actually saw His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. So, verse 1 and verse 14, you put them together, and what do you get? That the definition of God's Word was, in physical form, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what that means by the Word became flesh. It literally put on... Ligaments, tendons, bones, arteries. 
and He walked among us. Now keep in mind what we read in Hebrews, that God has spoken to us in these last days by His, His Son. When we come here, it describes His Son as another word. The, capital W-O-R-D, the word. That when God speaks, and we know in the beginning, when God created the heavens, when He created everything, the earth, He spoke it into existence. So when we hear the word Jesus, we can think of him as he is the Son of God. He also has another title, the Word of God. These verses tell us that that word, or Jesus, we can plug him in where? At the very beginning of the Bible. At the very beginning. Look at the next verse, John chapter 1, verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. It's just rehashing it. Verse 3. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. What could we, if we put that in our English, that we were going to talk to seventh graders, how would we say that in today's language? Nothing was made except the word was present. That means that when God was busy with creation, speaking the stars into existence, when he created an Adam and Eve, he used language, he used words. When he made Adam, when he formed him, he even breathed into him. The Word, or Jesus, was responsible for creation. Or at least he was a conduit. He was part of creation. That make sense? That means he was at the very beginning. And not just there as an observer. The reason going through this, we start with this idea about idol worship. We saw that the Jewish people in their day could not make the connection between the Old Testament view that they had lived through with the beginning of the New Testament that Jesus was starting. They could not make that connection. And in our world that you and I live in today, we have many people that get it exactly wrong the same way that they did, only in reverse. They only see Jesus as a New Testament guy. Somebody that just showed up during the New Testament times, called 12 Jewish fishermen, they followed him, and he started teaching people. He did do those things. That's not where he came from. That's not where he started. What I want you to see is from both sides. You can start with the Old Testament, and if you can't connect it to the New, like the Jewish leaders, heap big trouble. Those people wanted to kill God. And you can do it in reverse. That You can look at Jesus only in the New Testament, and if you never connect him with the old, you're going to get a false picture of who Jesus of Nazareth was and is today. And that's how you end up with churches teaching and preaching things out of the Bible, painting a picture of Jesus that does not exist in the pages of our Bible. Because they do not connect the Old Testament with the New. There is no, there, there's no demarcation, biblically speaking, where God somehow changed. And what, what I'm talking about, this, this almost present-day idol worship of having a false image of Jesus, in my opinion, that's a good way to describe it. They have a demarcation that whatever happened in the Old Testament is irrelevant. That that's a picture of a mean God that we really don't know anymore. That's hogwash. This, these verses tell us Jesus was not only in the beginning with God, He was responsible or part of creation. Nothing was made 
without the Word. When you get into verse 14 in John 1, it tells us that that Word, in the disciples' day, He became flesh. I'm just trying to paint an accurate picture of Jesus has been in the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation 22 that has not yet even been fulfilled yet. He's the same. The problem, of course, is in the Gospels, when Jesus is here, he's not here yet to mete out judgment. He didn't even mete out judgment to the sinful people that grabbed him, that he allowed to be grabbed, and drug off to Calvary to put nails in him. He could have judged those people. He would have legal authority to, but his mission at that time was to do what? Was to make sure he got on that cross. The Bible teaches us that he, in effect, he tricked Satan and the rulers of this earth to get him on that cross when they thought they were winning and killing him. He conquered this universe. He paid for it. He won it over. And the Bible tells us that all power has now been given to him because he paid for it. He paid the penalty for sin. But of course, as we say many times, next time he comes, he, nobody will be dragging him off and nobody will be putting a hand on him. He will be all-powerful. He was all-powerful then, but he submitted himself to death. So, we have these two pictures. In Jesus' Jesus's time, there were what you might refer to as Old Testament people that couldn't connect Jesus with the Old Testament. Their view, their image of what God was supposed to look like had no bearing in what they saw in Jesus. And because of that, because they had an idol set up in their mind and they could not accurately picture God, how did they treat God? What was their reaction toward him? They called him the devil. Remember those Jewish leaders? They said, you cast out devils by Beelzebub. Literally got it so wrong thought he was the devil. That should give a person pause. Bring forward into our day. and Look at how we get it wrong. I shouldn't say we. There are people that get it wrong. Maybe not to that degree, but somewhat close and in reverse. There are things the Bible talks about that God cannot stand, that he defines as abominations. And we have people today that say they love Jesus and they're openly, proudly promoting in their view, in the name of Jesus, they're promoting those sins. They want to further it. They want to expand it. And they're saying that they love Jesus. All of that comes from an idol worship, that you have a wrong picture of what Jesus looks like, what he said, and what he did. This part of John chapter 1 is so important because it links. It makes us understand that when we read in the Old Testament about God sending the flood during Noah's time to cleanse the earth, Jesus was part of that. He was part of the triune Godhead that sent that into the earth. Let's think for a second of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. There... From here, we know that Jesus was in the beginning. That verse in Genesis says that God created and his spirit moved on the waters. There's the triune Godhead. God the Father, the Son, the creative work, 
and the Spirit that moved on the waters. They're all three there. And every story we read in the Old Testament, whatever God is doing, whatever God is punishing, whatever He is rewarding, who else is right there? That's right. This Jesus that we worship, He didn't show up 2,000 years ago. He did physically in the flesh. But maybe that's not even true, or accurate, we should say. Think back to some of these stories in the Old Testament. Remember in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make a stand for God. They're not going to bow to the king. They will not worship an, an idol, an image that was set up. They would not worship an idol. And because of that, the Babylonian king threw them into a fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to an idol. They knew the correct picture of God. And what happened when they threw them in the fire? That king looked in there and it said, he saw not three men but four And he said the fourth man had the appearance of the Son of God. In the Old Testament. Back in old Babylon, ancient Babylon. They looked into the fire. The Bible writers didn't say that they were there. and They saw somebody that they wanted people to believe was the Son of God. The heathen looked in there and according to their testimony, what they thought they saw was the Son of God walking in the fire with those three men. Jesus has been around a lot longer than the days of the disciples. He has been ever-present God. That's a huge distinction, because how many people, in what we're describing, that think that Jesus was, they'd say he was a good teacher and a good philosopher? People, there's been, Steve's a good teacher. and a pretty, I like his philosophy. But he's only been around since about 1949. These people that describe Jesus as a teacher and philosopher, they put him in only very, very limited terms. He is ever-present. He is God in the flesh. And he is forever, eternal. Eternal existence. He always was before anybody ever knew him and shook hands with him. And he forever will be into the future. Now, that's a great distinction, a huge distinction. Because we look at Jesus now a little different. It'd be a, now that what we have just spoken in the last 20 minutes, it'd be a lot harder to convince people that Jesus is separate from other things in the Bible. When we talk about idol worship, that's really what we're trying to diffuse. All of the scripture paints a picture of God But if only a very small portion of it is taken out, and maybe one character trait of God, we're going to get a wrong picture. We get a wrong picture, and now it's very easy to interpret some of these verses as, I bet God really didn't mean quite what it sounds like in today's world. We get different translations. We try to massage the words to mean something else, and pretty soon 20 years has gone by, and everybody accepts the fact that since Jesus is love, that must mean whatever anybody defines as love, even two men, two women loving each other, that that is God. Very easy to get to that point if you have an idol in your mind. And that's a false picture of what God, what Jesus is. Go to John chapter 3. 
Since we've introduced this idea that he is eternal, let's look at some of the stories that Jesus even brought up. He brought up so many Old Testament pictures. John chapter 3, and look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is Jesus making a reference to a story in Numbers chapter 21. Go to, let's go back there because our eyes need to go see what Jesus is talking about. The fourth book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 21. That's way back there. And yet Jesus brought it up. He wanted to talk about this event. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 5. The people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents. Now we, people read that and they think that's, that's the Old Testament God that we don't have anything to do with. That's false. Who was also, who was part of that phrase, the Lord sent fiery serpents? God the Father, it's God the Son, and it's the Holy Spirit. They were both, all three, there. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And this is what the Lord said unto Moses. Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Moses made a serpent of brass, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. It is a little bit of a strange story to our ears. Nevertheless, Jesus brought it up and pointed his listeners back to this idea that in the wilderness, when they complained and they spoke against God, in effect they were cursing God, saying that he told us he'd take us out of Egypt and take care of us, but he's not. And God had a judgment on them. When they prayed to be forgiven, God had this scenario, that Moses, their leader, got a huge brass pole and put a serpent on it so that when the people would look at it, and at the time, maybe they had no idea. Maybe Moses had no idea why he was getting a brass pole, putting a brass serpent on it. He only knew he was obeying God. He was doing what God told him. All these generations later, when Jesus' time comes, we know what's going to happen to him. He is going to be put on a pole, a cross. And God was teaching people that could read. He was teaching our generation that could go back into history and get a hold of this story that what God did in Numbers, he also did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That when Jesus got on the pole, whoever would look to him, and what that means is to search him out, to believe him, to listen to what he said, and to follow. To be obedient just like Moses was, putting that serpent up there. See the connection? The New Testament and Old Testament 
And Jesus himself makes reference to this judgmental story. That most people today would say, I, yeah, I love Jesus. They want nothing to do with God's judgment or his standards or his holiness. Jesus himself wanted to be identified with this. What we learned in John chapter 1 was Jesus was there in that story in Numbers chapter 21. He is, he is pre-eternal, if, we can, if that's even a word. He was always with God. He was in the very beginning. Can you think of does any other stories come to your mind that Jesus mentioned? I remember John chapter 6. The Jewish people are talking to him about, well, our fathers in the Old Testament, God gave them manna in the wilderness. And Jesus went on to say, he said, that's right, God did, but he said, I am the true manna that God sends down from heaven, that whoever takes of me, you'll You'll never need to eat again. You, you will live forever. I will give you something for your flesh that will make you live forever. And he's talking about consuming his word. But again, he paints the picture that in the Old Testament, God sent this manna from heaven to feed the people. You get to Jesus' time and he tells his people the exact same language. He points them back to that story in the Old Testament. And he says, I am the bread sent down from the Father. We have this phrase in Christian churches, the bread of life. Jesus started that phrase and he started it from where? An Old Testament story. He wants the reader to understand that what those people did and how they were taken care of by God, that Jesus, his word, his sacrifice for us is just as strong and even stronger. See, God uses Old Testament stories to get different facets of the story, and he puts it together with the New Testament stories, and out of it we get the full picture. We get the full picture of God's, his standards that the people always seem to fail, God's protection, his mercy, and then his grace in the New Testament. When you put all of these stories together, God the Father and God His Son making the sacrifice together, we get this full picture of, an accurate picture of who the God of the universe is. Even though He is full of grace, He still does have this requirement for judgment. He has always judged sin. And this is why, when you get to the end of the New Testament, because the 80%, 90% of the New Testament he is talking to us about grace and love. I fully admit that, and we need that. Once God has taught people that throughout the New Testament, what does he end with? If you don't accept it, and Hebrews says it this way, I need to read it, because this language is wonderful. Hebrews, you don't have to turn there, but to get it on tape, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, verse 2. It says, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. It's saying, in the New Testament, it's saying that even the angels received judgment when they sinned against God. And they went with Lucifer. And it's saying, every transgression, every disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great 
a salvation. Think of the language Paul uses there. If we neglect so great a salvation. It is true, God doesn't send people to hell. If you like language, that's true. People make that choice. We ne- that verse says, we neglect it. That means it's our decision. It's at our hand. It's in our hand. It's up to us what we do with God's word. And if it's rejected, as this verse says, how shall we escape? How shall a person escape if they neglect what God has done for them? And Now you start to you bring it all full circle and you get the full picture of God. He has a certain standard. He showed us that with Adam and Eve in the garden. He has a way of getting back to God. God preserved this miracle seed starting throughout the entire Old Testament, even Noah. And out of Noah, ten generations later came Abraham. And through Abraham, there was two branches, Ishmael and Isaac, but God said it's this promised one. The promised miracle child. And you follow that one line, follow that down through history, and you eventually come to a man named Jesus that was born out of that lineage. And that is where the price was paid so that God could get us back into his presence if we choose. Keep following that lineage. And after about 2,000 years or so, or when the fullness of time comes and God calls for Jesus to come back to this earth to get his people, if at that time people have rejected it, or as this verse says, have neglected this salvation, Then it says, how shall we escape? Quite a picture that that paints. Let's pray as we... Hello, sir. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for what is taught in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you open our eyes to see these things. We pray, Lord, that as we read your word, that you would continue to communicate to us through your word, just as you did to the the, the Old Testament fathers through the prophets, that you speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray for Pastor and Tiff, that you guard and protect them. Keep them with all diligence in Jesus' name. Amen.